You are listening to Slaves to the Algo with Suresh Shankar, a show about AI, big data, disruptive technology, and strategies for your business to stay ahead in the age of relevance. Brought to you by Crayon Data. Hello, viewers and listeners. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data, an AI and big data startup headquartered in Singapore. And I'm delighted to welcome you back to season two of my podcast, Slaves to the Algo. Slaves to the Algo is my attempt to demystify the age of the algorithm. I plan to share my own learnings and those of leading professionals in their fields to understand how they are using or being used by algorithms in both their personal and their professional lives. And today I'm delighted to have Gillian Doherty, a computer scientist, a business leader, and the co-founder of the C and CEO of the Data Lab. Gillian worked at, for 22 years at IBM. That's a long time. I spent two years and I had to get out, uh, but before founding the Data Lab. But the interesting thing about it is that the Data Lab is Scotland's Innovation Center for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. So it's the first time we're having somebody on the show who actually represents a national body. Um, Gillian's also on the board of the Tech Partnership and the Glasgow Chamber of Commerce. And she was named as one of the most influential women in technology in Scotland in 2019. And she's an officer of the Order of the British Empire in the 2019 birthday honors, another first on the show. Welcome to the show, Gillian. It's a pleasure to be here, Suresh. Delighted to join you. Um, Gillian, you know, we first met in Singapore 18 months ago in a day when we had a physical meeting and, you know, we were talking about stuff face-to-face uh, -face in a panel. Um, and I think your journey has been fascinating. There are many facets to your career and your experience, the turns you've taken. Um, when I met you in Singapore, you were full of great stories. I also know that you have a great story about Charlie and Jarvis, and we'll come to that right at the end. But first up, let me start with a slightly more personal question out here. Uh, and I'd like to start with this because, you know, while we're all professionals, we're affected as professionals in technology, we're also affected as individuals by the developments in AI and, 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 and data. And can you share some examples of some great algorithms that you've come across that has impacted your life, either positively or negatively? Um, in some ways, you know, there are so many things that we don't even know are run by algorithms. Uh, so could you share some examples of how your own life has become either useful or dangerous because of algorithms? Wow, that's a, it's a great question to start with. Um, I, when we met, you, you mentioned great stories and I, I love stories. I think stories really bring things to life for, for everyone. Um, and the ones that always get me and the ones that always get people that I speak to are the ones around healthcare. So the use of algorithms to improve health and well-being. Uh, and we've worked on lots of different projects from using computer vision algorithms to, to work on complex neck cancers, to assist the oncologists, to uh, integrating uh, patient experience measures with their clinical treatment data to improve their clinical treatment pathways. Uh, and those are the ones that always get me. Um, as you know, we all get older, we all have health complications, our families do. And for me, it's the use of algorithms that really improve that for patients and for citizens. So how does it improve their treatment pathways? How do they improve uh, how they feel and how they, they feel heard, which is another thing. Uh, so, you know, their treatment's not just done to them, that they actually feel part of it. 
So those are the ones that, that really, uh, I think, hit home to me. And they're also the ones that when you're chatting about what you do, um, not at any recent dinner parties, but certainly in the past, if you chat that you work in technology and you work with artificial intelligence, uh, the natural reaction of people is, is to look at that kind of almost um, the robots are coming, we're all doomed. Um, but when you really start to uncover, well, actually, it's helping doctors, it's helping oncologists, it's helping radiologists uh, treat you better should you have any illness. I think it's it's very, very powerful. Could you share some examples? I mean, you know, I'm sure you have many, but something that it so vividly brings along how it can do good. Sure. So, so one of the ones that um, I really like was it's a project uh, in the Highlands of Scotland, uh, and it was with a housing association who were building fit homes, and the homes were fitted with a number of sensors, sensors gathering data, and algorithms were built analysing the data from the sensors to help determine whether the individual in the home has a higher probability of falling. As we all know, falling can be extremely dangerous um, for elderly or, or infirm or, or people who are challenged maybe with mobility. And could we, using data from sensors, build algorithms that will predict um, when an individual has that higher probability and then intervene with care, social care, um, let their families know, uh, and that was a really powerful project. Uh, and we worked closely with the NHS uh, professionals who helped us look at what are the characteristics or, or uh, should we say, challenges that someone might have that would lead to those higher probabilities. So dehydration is one. If, if an individual is dehydrated, they are more likely to have a fall. So can those sensors help indicate whether the individual is drinking the same as they normally do, whether they are not? Are they moving around the house in the same way? Uh, and using that to hopefully improve their care and the ability for them to live independently. You've just given a new meaning to the eight glasses of water. I mean, I'm going to absolutely. I'm not in danger of following, but I think I'm going to kind of be a little bit more careful about that. But but that's very interesting because it's such a small thing, and you know, I would have expected you to say, "Oh, people fall because you know when they're going down steps or something," but no one thinks about dehydration. Are there any other such examples? I mean, you know, because these are the fascinating ways in which people don't realize um, how data can actually help improve their lives. Yeah, I think, I think there's there's a huge movement around that health and well-being um, in integrated data. So data from either devices you wear, smartwatches, uh, other uh, experience, and how you're feeling, and how that is integrated with what traditionally has been siloed. Uh, healthcare data from your uh, doctors and your clinicians uh, and actually a more holistic view of the individual is much more powerful and you also feel much more listened to. So we did a project a few years ago um, as part of the Cancer Innovation Challenge and one of the, the projects was gathering data from the patient, um, how they were feeling, how they were feeling pre-treatment, post-treatment and then integrating that with their clinical treatment data. Now, normally, uh, you wouldn't see your consultant from one appointment to the next. And by the time you go and see them, maybe patterns of how you're feeling haven't been spotted. But every day, mm -hmm. if you're just filling in an app or um, a, kind of a website that, that just gives you the chance to say, I'm not feeling great today, uh, and kind of give a bit more detail about how you're feeling, 
actually we can spot different patterns of how people are coping with treatment that will hopefully lead to improved treatment pathways in the future. And that's fascinating. I'm going to come back to you because you also do a lot of work with data policy about this part of it is a good part and there's obviously the data is being collected, how is it being put to use, privacy issues, how is that? But we'll come to that later because I'm moving on to what to me is very fascinating. I mean, you know, the first time when I heard about the data lab, you're headquartered in Scotland, I, your founding mission, and I'm just going to read it out, quote, help Scotland maximize value from data and lead the world to a data powered future, unquote. That was fascinating because the country is beginning to think about AI as a competitive edge. So can you tell us a little bit because you quit, you know, your commercial IBM job and you went to do this. So how does this whole idea of a country looking at AI and big data as a competitive edge uh, come about and, and what's the, what's, what's the, what's the, the rationale there? Absolutely. So in fact, the data lab is part of a bigger innovation center program. And it, it really came from the understanding at a national level that we had some amazing industries. Uh, those industries didn't invest in R&D to the level that we had hoped. Uh, we also had some world leading academics in the country, but they often worked with companies all around the world and maybe didn't build the local relationships that would help some of those companies invest in R&D. And so from that understanding, the, the government and its agencies decided to create an intervention. And that intervention led to the creation of eight innovation centers focused on either an industry sector that Scotland has um, a great opportunity in or a technology area that would impact many sectors. But we felt we had academic capability and expertise that we could bring to bear to help the country and the country's uh, businesses. And from that program, the data lab was born. So we, we had some great uh, assets in terms of data science and AI, and Edinburgh University had one of the first AI departments in the world in the 1960s, um, much of it theoretical at that point. Uh, but we had a, a great set of foundations, but we had to intervene to make sure more companies became data active, that they knew how to get started, they knew how to get help, we have quite a significant skills and talent program because probably the biggest inhibitor to, to building um, better with data and driving value from data is, is skills. And that's at every level from your board and your senior executives down to your data engineers and data scientists and teams. Uh, and so that's where the idea flourished from. Um, we've been going for just over, um, just coming up to six years. And what has been, I think really key is giving us the freedom and the flexibility and the empowerment to do what's needed. So we receive public funding to do what we do. We are given, you know, it's a broad mission, it's a big mission, but we are tasked with um, identifying where the gaps are, where the needs are for our economy, for our businesses, and how do we build services and support to help plug those gaps. I'm going to I'm going to kind of just drill down a little bit because the second thing that struck me about the data lab is that you have a very precise and quantified objective that should appeal to data geeks right and yeah. again quote over the next five years to achieve the following economic and social impact in Scotland 665 MSc students 104 collaboration projects and 590 million pounds of economic impact 
And I found that again very fascinating because if you're dealing with data, that's that. I said that's data. I mean, and how do those numbers come about? And what is that scale of um, you know? There's it seems this collaboration between government and presumably public sector, private sector. There's teaching in terms of students, and there's economic impact. So there's a broad variety of things out there. So how did you come up with those numbers? I mean. Yeah, so I, it was these numbers are, are for the five years from 2019, and they were based on our experience from the first few years of running the data lab, um, where we built did, new did capability. Did an AI come up with those numbers, or did a human uh, being no, come up with a those human, numbers? No, a human being, human being, but, but it was based on analysis of the data from our first few years of uh, work. So we, we knew our the projects that we were working on, what the likely impact was. And, and for every project that we do, we ask the company uh, a few, you know, we, we've got quite an extensive uh, engagement process where we work with a company to understand their challenge, to understand actually what kind of new products or services would they like to build. If they were successful, how many more jobs do they think they could create in Scotland? How much additional revenue and profit could business um, and then we can invest in the project uh, and buying out academic time or, or other support mechanisms. I have an in-house team of data scientists we can deploy onto projects as well, where we help the company on that journey. So we can see a direct line of sight from our investment and our support to new products or services or business models in the market, to new jobs being created and to additional revenue and profit for the company. So it, it is um, very, very tightly managed. Um, and that is where those types of numbers come from. In terms of the master's students, uh, we, the studentships we offer is we pay the student fees for master's students. We bring the cohort together for meta skill training and employability training. We challenge them during an innovation challenge week with challenges from businesses. And then probably one of the most important things we do is find placements for those students in industry for their master's project. That starts to build relationships with companies. Um, many of our students move straight into full-time employment with those companies. It lets them try out, you know, is this the right fit? Um, culturally, values, the type of work you do. Uh, and what I think is really important is that uh, so this year, for example, we have 160 studentships we're supporting across 13 universities and 26 different master's courses. So we have some that are very broad, you know, they're um, data, data engineering or data science or AI, and some that are quite applied. So the use of AI in health informatics or the use of AI in financial management. Uh, and it gives us that balance to, to generate the kind of talent we're hearing from industry that is required. Uh, and that, that's a great thing to be able to do. And what it's also led is to the creation of brand new courses that previously may, a university may have taken longer to launch. Because they have the certainty of a number of funded places, they know that they can make it viable. And therefore we've seen a proliferation of new courses coming um, that, that has been really beneficial so that we can have that breadth of talent with the different skill sets needed and it's allowed uh, our university partners to scale those. So we, in some courses, we only fund maybe six to 10 places, but those courses now have 100, 150 participants. So the other students are paying, paying their own fees, um, but it's creating that wealth of talent. And, and that has seen great investment into Scotland with companies coming and building their data teams here. Uh, we've got a, 
you know, and that's in the context of a, a broader Scotland uh, come here because it, it's fabulous message. No, I think I think people should come to Scotland anyway without the AI <laughs> and the data lab. But uh, but I think uh, what's what's really I mean, you know, you, you seem to have made, um, you know, if I may call it this, a clear template of the pathway from teaching people to working with government to quantifying the impact to actually measuring that impact. Would that be is that something that's exportable? Absolutely. It's, um, I think on my travels and, and when I, I came to, to visit you in, in Singapore uh, and similarly in, in even parts of the US, East Coast and West Coast, you know, people said, are you coming to set up the data lab here? And it's like, well, anyone can set up a data lab, but there's some key ingredients that are really important. It's, it's a government who understand and, and really believe in the impact of data and AI for the economy and for society. Uh, it's uh, the freedom for an organization like the Data Lab to exist and to do the right things. Not every country, you know, you, I don't think it's as straightforward as cookie cutter, you know, you do the exact same things. You know, if you set up a Data Lab in Singapore or in India or in Indonesia, um, it needs to be relevant for that market. You know, so we might work with fish farms. Um, aquaculture is a big um, uh, industry for Scotland. Food and drink or whiskey industry. We do a lot of work in that industry. But each country has it. I think depth. that's something that's something that our viewers would, and listeners would really be interested. How is your AI improving the quality of the scotch that we are consuming? Oh, my goodness. Now, I think I might be giving away some trade secrets here, Suresh. So I'll need to be really careful. But actually, um, there was a project about whiskey tint. Whiskey tint is, is a really important aspect of selling whiskies, um, the tint and the colour of it. And one of the projects was building an algorithm that analysed the barrel type and the impact on tint and the environmental impact of where the barrel was kept in what kind of facility, temperature, um, humidity, all of those things. What are the ingredients, the, the kind of environmental ingredients, the, the barrel, the physical ingredients, that has the biggest impact on whiskey tint, but I can't see any more. Otherwise, uh, I might have our whiskey industry chasing me for giving away some trade secrets. No, but that's fascinating. And I just literally meant that as a joke, but I had no idea that there's been so much work done <laughs> on it. And, it's, um, and to me, it kind of points out this whole thing, right? That there is data and you talked about people falling and dehydration yeah. levels. And now you're talking about whiskey and you're talking about you know, so many different ways in which data is taking over this world. Is there any other example that you can share from a governmental or a public sector perspective, uh, which is as fascinating as to what the data labs enabled, um, you know, in terms of making AI more usable? Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. Um, and, and you've caught me at a great time because yesterday, just yesterday, Scotland launched its AI strategy. Um, so I would encourage all the listeners and viewers to go and have a look. Uh, and Scotland's AI strategy is built around our people. Uh, the tagline is trustworthy, ethical and inclusive. And at the outset, it's been a process we've supported the government on for the last 18 months. And at the outset, we, we will never be able to invest in, in AI at the same way that some of the world's largest economies. Uh, but what we can do is we can build AI that works for our people. AI that is trustworthy, that is ethical. You know, a creation of an AI playbook that will help our businesses and our organisations. Um, so, so the launch of that was really crucial. And 
the, the way it was built over 18 months was significant consultation both with our public um, and with people working in this area and with international leaders. So we created a number of working groups from data infrastructure to ethics and regulation to joining the dots with what else is happening either in the UK or out globally. We had public consultations and we ran public engagement workshops. So uh, there was a great one, Suresh, that I'm sure you would love, where we had a multi-generational uh, workshop where we had, you know, the teenage child, the mom or dad and the grandparent. And we explored, well, what does AI mean to you? And, and what are your hopes or fears? And a lot of the time we had to start with, well, what even is AI? I don't know what it is. But the resounding feedback from the public was that, actually they were quite excited by the end of those workshops they were excited about the opportunity that it, that it created and just to give a few you know specific examples of what's happening in the public sector in Scotland we um we jointly support with our network Scottish Government Accelerator Data Accelerator so each year a number of projects come through where uh, there's a group working in data they may be data analysts so not quite data scientists yet or AI engineers where they believe something they are doing could be significantly improved by using new techniques. Um, and to just pick a very simple example was the census, which uh, the UK is due to run again in 2021, um, where traditionally selecting your em employment type was, was a real challenge and massive data wrangling had to be made after the fact to make sure categories of employment that were gathered during the census were accurate and meaningful. And actually we built algorithms that would significantly help that analysis and which could help significant amount of time, make it much more accurate and then usable in the future. And, and these are just little simple things that can have a big impact on a, a much bigger project program. Another one was, no, no, no. Uh, sorry. Go ahead, no, please. Just one more that I really love was the um, delayed discharge project with the NHS. So um, I, I don't think this is unique to Scotland, but um, if a patient gets admitted into hospital for a, for a treatment, um, often that, that treatment and illness leads to uh, when they come to be discharged from hospital, they need additional care packages or maybe alterations in their home uh, that you know, whether it's like a walk-in shower or a stair lift or handrails. And often a patient gets stuck in hospital while those things happen because it's not, should we say, processed until near, near the time where they're allowed to be clinically discharged. And we worked on a project, could we predict which patients that was likely to happen to at point of entry into hospital rather than a clinical discharge team? And the algorithm yes. that was built, joining different data sets together, was 97% accurate in predicting which patients were likely to become blocked in hospital at their discharge time. Uh, and that therefore, you... mind-boggling number. If you're, you're, you're telling me that when a patient walks into a hospital in Scotland, you have an algorithm that can predict with 97% certainty when they will be discharged. No, not when they'll be discharged, but the likelihood of them becoming blocked in hospital okay. because they, they will require further assistance on discharge. And that allows okay. you to start to look at intervening to build those uh, support mechanisms. Okay. But it's still 97% of any algorithm is like a phenomenal number. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's very interesting. You know, you talked about trustworthiness and, you know, you talked about... Um, data wrangling and you know 
things like you know the employment type and most people think about data and ai and they think about cool social media apps and a scroll but the kind of work that you're talking about is is deep it's detailed there's a lot of it is about just making sure the source data is actually as you said trustworthy mm-hmm. to be able to make those um you know conclusions that ai can do and uh, it's something that gets ignored a lot so what's your take on that i mean this whole idea of data wrangling and the data janitor the guy who gets it together mm-hmm. unsexy but really the heart of the algorithm is in that quality oh absolutely i think uh fundamentally uh certainly data engineering skills are are highly highly sought after and a lot of the big companies you know the spotifys the you know the big companies who are you know building huge pipelines of data science algorithms and uh and machine learning and deep learning what what is really challenging it's great to run a little experiment it's great to build something in a pilot phase and and you can check if it works you can check its efficacy one of the biggest challenges is scaling that and then making sure your data pipeline that feeds you know into that is is it the same is it changing uh, and that's a real real challenge when you're looking at scale uh, and i think uh, we've certainly seen you know a huge increase and challenge in that space uh, and and i think many industries that are looking at scaling algorithms uh, the data pipeline required and the resilience of that data pipeline is really key yeah and and you mentioned the strategy trustworthy inclusive i'm going to go to the inclusive your group in partnership with some others recently released a fascinating report called mind the gap and which you talked about the scottish data gap and what is the idea of a data gap and how does it affect societies because i just found this one of the most fascinating thoughts that i've come across recently yeah so so it was a a project that we worked on as as you said with um, scottish council for development and industry and other partners and the scottish data gap really is it's the gap between the health and social care data that we currently collect utilize and share versus the health and social care data that we think we need to collect and utilize and share in the future um and it can be generated in many different contexts from clinical or care settings like hospitals it could be in pharmacies it could be in care homes to community and commercial settings like online retail or or wearables or internet of things and it's actually those in that breadth of uh you know contexts how do we drive new insights and accelerate new innovations to drive a well-being economy uh, a well-being economy scotland is one of a few countries in the world that has really uh, committed to becoming a well-being economy and if we have a healthy nation we'll have a healthy economy or a healthier economy and so uh, the 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 report and the project really looked into that um, it identified a, a few areas uh, about why we need to do it and about how we possibly could do it and 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 you're saying that i mean i get the idea of the well-being economy though i think it's down to the scots that you all drink uh, but <laughs> leaving that aside for the moment uh, you're saying that you're collecting a lot of healthcare data and in various sources and you want to collect more or that you're not able to put together all the data that is already being collected and that's the gap which one is more of the gap really oh excuse me um there's there's gap in both areas uh i think uh, probably the gap of it bringing it all together is probably bigger and more challenging uh 
I think we collect a huge amount of health data. In Scotland, we all have a community health index number called the CHI number. And that is a unique identifier that is used for all our healthcare provision. Um, but, and, and our data is brought together in, in something called a safe haven that is available for research purposes where you can bring data sets together. But I think there's more work uh, to be done there. And again, ethically and, trust, and, and trustworthy needs to be at the heart of that. And I will come to the ethics in a moment, Gillian, but it's fascinating because healthcare costs every economy anywhere between 10% to 20, 21% of the economy in terms of the amount of money that's spent on health, apart from, of course, the emotional impact that it has on us as human beings. This seems to be something revolutionary that you can actually, if you can quantify the data gap, what is existing in order to become a more well-being society. This seems fundamentally revolutionary to me. Okay, well, I'm great. Yeah, great, you find it revolutionary, but I think it's um, really if 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 you if you get under the covers of it, it actually probably is common sense. It kind of makes sense to people who work with data understand the potential that it has. Now, uh, I, I'm I, you certainly in healthcare and clinical settings. You know, do not take humans out the loop. You know support your oncologists and your radiologists and your doctors with better and more informed data, more uh, connected data with other data sources that give them, again, that, that fuller picture. Uh, but I think it's important, I think, for, for us as a country and I think uh, for many countries around the world to, to get that more holistic view uh, and to support their citizens, their people and those in health and care settings Time. I have three more questions. Um, so, Jillian, uh, I think we can carry on with this conversation for hours, being two people mm -hmm. who both love data and how we can use it. But I do have, um, you know, you talked about the third pillar, ethics or ethical part of this AI strategy. One of the big concerns that people tend to have, and especially in areas like healthcare, is about, you know, the bias in the ethics. If I give my data up, who is going to be able to get hold of it? Is it data secure? Will it be used to make my insurance policy more costly? So there's a whole lot of questions around bias and ethics in AI. And you know that's probably a podcast in itself, but I just wanna ask you a simple question. Um, it seems that in the last 10 years, the growth of data and AI has largely been left to the private sector to do whatever they want. But now as you go forward, what role is the data lab playing? How are bodies like yours getting involved with regulators, with governments? to make sure that we actually have a fair and ethical use of data and AI? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. It has predominantly been the private sector and it's, it's also been behind closed doors. So more often than not, we've not known that uh, there's been algorithms and, and data being used in certain ways. I think we're much more aware now than we were. So the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal uh, and, and other things that have come into the public domain over the last couple of years have made us much more aware as citizens uh, about what's going on with the private sector. But you're absolutely right, as the public sector uh, engages with the opportunity, uh, there is a, a raft of questions, not, not just around uh, privacy, bias, unintended consequences, which is a huge challenge. What do you do when you uncover unintended consequences? Um, there's a great saying that if you don't have a diverse team working on this, by default, your algorithm will be biased. Um, so how do we bring that diversity, the diversity of thought, the diversity of challenge 
um, to really try and understand before we proceed what potential unintended consequences could there be. So, so Scotland, um, as part of their COVID uh, response and recovery, have built a data and intelligence network between many parts of the public sector. So our local government, our uh, central government, our health or care centres or universities. And as part of that data intelligence network, we've helped support the government in the creation of an ethic, um, which really is going to be used as a lens to for each project that the network looks to solve or, or to uh, work on. Uh, a serious and suite of questions that are really, really critical uh, that, that needs to be asked. Uh, and that will hopefully help identify um, potential uh, privacy challenges, bias challenges, ethical issues um, that will allow that team then to evaluate uh, how they minimise those or eradicate them and whether even fundamentally should the project go ahead. Uh, and I think these these questions are, are really, really important. And it's great that we're now having them. I think there's much more debate around ethics and bias than there was three or four years ago. Uh, it was certainly needed. Uh, and I think it, it will never ever go away. I think um, if anything, you know, we need to become more robust at uh, asking those questions and understanding of how we, how we progress with areas where, you know, those, uh, those questions give us answers that don't align with our values and our principles. Uh, they're not trustworthy, they're not ethical, uh, and maybe they're not inclusive. Uh, and having the confidence and the ability to say, actually, we're not going to proceed because we can't see a way of doing this that, that meets the values that we have as a, as a nation. So uh, if I'm understanding the right, the ethical framework essentially is literally like a checklist about what what was done, how it was done, et cetera. So people have to kind of put this out there before they actually go ahead and do the research. Is that is that right? I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, Dr. Atul Gawande talks about the checklist manifesto. It's like, it's a bit like that. It's it's more detailed than that. So it's, it's open questions. It's not necessarily just a check, you know, have you checked this? Yes, it's not a tick box exercise. It's much, it's much deeper in terms of understanding about, uh, what the project's trying to achieve and how it's going to do that um, and, and tries to uncover potential areas that 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 would have been unintended uh, and maybe an unintended consequence of of the particular area or project that it's been worked on uh, no, that, and is, is, that is yeah sorry go ahead no no, it's fascinating because I was talking to Ian Miles and he talked about explainable AI and, you know, he said, and, you know, he was a very nice example. He said in the 70s, food labels didn't carry any nutrition information. Mm -hmm. No, whether or not we look at it, we expect the nutrition information to be there saying this is what it is, right? And eventually he says, you know, your AI is going to come with a nutrition label. And Apple, in fact, has started putting that nutrition label out on how the data was collected or making strides to this. And to me, this seems like um, the right direction for AI to go, as opposed to the very dark, everything is invisible, no one knows what's going on, which seemed to characterize the last 10 years. So do you see that more and more companies and more and more governments will encourage this whole open AI? Do you think that this whole, oh, I did what I want, I don't know how I got the data. What, what, what do you think? Is the future going to be utopian or dystopian? Oh, I'm absolutely in the utopian camp, uh, without a doubt. I think uh, 
But in order to make sure that we stay there, I think it's about making sure our, our people are educated. Um, and we've done some work looking at thing, uh, kind of understanding what does a data citizen look like? What does a data worker look like? What does a data professional look like? And we've got to inform people because companies will not be allowed to do the black box dystopian view if we don't buy their products or we don't engage with our service. Uh, and therefore we need to educate people to, you know, as you said, read those labels, you know, you can go for the red thing, but no, you shouldn't have a lot of that because it's not very good for you. Uh, but we've been educated to read those labels, understand them and understand what's good for us, what's moderately good for us and what's really not good for us. Uh, and, and I think the more we educate ourselves as to, to that, and then the consequence of not wanting to engage with companies that are not explaining how they're doing this very well, uh, is more powerful than anything else. It's, it's you know, yes, we could regulate it, but can we really keep regulation ahead of um, potentially bad actors? Or actually, if people don't engage, then there's there's no reason to be a bad actor because you don't have a company or a product or a service that people will engage with. Um, but absolutely, utop you know, utopian, engaged, informed, um, explainable, definitely, that's, that's where, I, that's the camp I'm in. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, most of the time I'm in the utopian camp. And then some days I'm like, oh my God, look at this, this is so dark. I mean, I don't think this can be controlled. Human nature is too dystopian. But um, I'm going to kind of, you know, that's probably a conversation itself, like I said. So I'm just going to, uh, and I'm going to kind of point this out to all our viewers and listeners. I'm going to ask Jillian to take a quick peek into the future. Jillian, four years ago, I think you delivered a TEDx talk on 2037. And you painted a almost like it was like black mirror esque view of your daughter Charlie's life in in 2037. You concluded by saying that you know we need to lead today to make sure that our children are not disrupted but aided by such technologies. So I'm I know there's a whole TED talk and you know it's a TEDx talk. Everyone can go and see Jillian Docherty 2000, 2037 who's leading who's following. But I just wanted to ask you if you look back now three years or four years from that moment. Are we leading? Do you believe that we will be masters of the algorithms? Are we becoming more slaves? What do you think your daughter's life is in 2021 when you look for 20 years from now? Yeah, I I look back and I, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. Uh, back then, uh, I, and the talk was meant to provoke. Um, it probably equally scared and excited people in equal measure. Uh, I think uh, people came out of that, you know, hearing the talk and thinking, oh, I'm, I don't like that bit, but I quite like that bit. And that's the whole point. It was to provoke thought and said, actually, we are in charge of our destiny. It's up to us how we build the algorithms, what, you know, um, boundaries we put around them, where we want to use them, where we don't. Um, I think it leads to the question, just because we could doesn't mean we should. Um, and therefore, uh, I am hopeful that we are leading and that we are building a future that I will look forward to my daughter enjoying. And is there any one particular incident that you predicted, which you said would happen 20 years that is already happening? Oh my goodness. Uh, I'm trying to remember back all the elements. Uh, I think, you know, a little bit about uh, uh, if you, use wearables and you share it with your fitness instructor they kind of know what you've been doing um i think uh, the there's probably 
the driverless cars ha happening in some parts of the world, certainly more in trial format than, than real. Uh, the one that I'm, I'm really hopeful for, because it was the one that was probably even beyond 2037, was um, the creation of a 3D printed, fully functioning organ, a heart for a heart transplant. Um, now we are seeing huge amounts of 3D printing being used for prosthetics and being used to help surgeons practice uh, and for training purposes. Um, but we're starting to see the glimmer of functioning uh, uh, cells and skin using 3D printing, which is really quite exciting. So in fact, and this is one of the things that always fascinates me, we say these things when we look 20 years ahead and sometimes when we look back, we look after five years, that a lot of this already happened and then some things seem a little bit further away. And I'm sure if you read the talk again, you'll find 10 more new things. Um, uh, but you know, like I said, thank you very much for being on the show. Gillian Dockery, Officer of the Order of the British Empire, CEO of the Data Lab, computer scientist and business leader, and a person who's helping transform a country with the use of data and AI. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. To our viewers and listeners, Slaves to the Algo is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We release a new episode every Tuesday. Uh, if you did enjoy this week's episode, I'm sure you did. The, if you want to find out the mystery of Scotch, you got to look up Jillian and you got to find out about all her TED Talks. So don't forget to rate, share, subscribe. Stay safe in the age of COVID. Stay relevant in the age of AI and see you all next week. Once again, thank you, Jillian. Thank you, Suresh. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Slaves to the Algo, please rate, share, and subscribe. Visit crayondata.com to find out more. See you next time.